Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. To the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. Though the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. It doesn't pay to be my friend. I owe Neil a meal now. Hopefully the quote from St. Athanasius will be worth it. One of the great themes of the Bible, if not the great theme of the Bible, is this. God is glorified through saving his people from judgment. God is glorified in salvation through judgment. If you look at several of the the great stories of the Bible, you see this theme emerge that God is glorified in destroying his enemies and, and through that judgment, saving his people. In the flood, God delivers Noah and saves a righteous remnant, but he does that through destroying all the wickedness that is on the land. He glorifies himself, showing himself to be the one who has authority to create and decreate, and the one who is the owner of the world. He glorifies himself in being the one who saves the righteous and puts down the wicked. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God glorifies himself by saving Lot, and destroying sinners. Lot wasn't that great himself, was he? But he had the, the, the intercession of Abraham. And due to that, God glorifies himself as the one who is holy, as the one who has the right to judge sin, and he does it in saving his remnant and in judging many people. In the Exodus, God made a name for himself in saving the people of Israel through his judgment of the people of Egypt. And we went a few years ago through Exodus, and what we saw is each one of those ten plagues is the Lord taking on one of the gods of Egypt and one by one dismantling them. And so they believed there was a God over each of those domains that the Lord used to bring a plague upon them, over the sky, hail, frogs, gnats, Uh, And then finally, uh, the the Son of God, Pharaoh himself, the giver of life, God shows his power over him in taking away his firstborn and the firstborn of all the people of Egypt and saving his people. In the conquest, God glorifies himself by bringing his people into the promised land as he passes judgment on the Canaanites. And he shows that he's the one who owns the world and rules the world 
and is the judge of the world as he destroys wickedness, cleanses the land, and brings his people safely in. In the story of Esther, God glorifies his name as he judges Haman and the wicked people of that time, and he saves Esther, Mordecai, and the people of Israel. It seems you can't have one or the other. In the Bible, you have both. You have God glorifying himself in saving his people amidst the destruction of his enemies. I wish that weren't the case, but it is the case. And that is the way God has determined that his glory be known. And we see that theme again today in Revelation 14, because what we have here is two visions that look a lot alike. Here's the structure of this passage. You have a vision of Jesus, and then you have three angels, and then you have a vision of Jesus, and you have three angels. That's what's going on. If you know that, that, that sort of way that this text is balanced, you'll have a good idea. And in the one, he's sort of pronouncing good news to his people, and in the second, he's pronouncing judgment upon his enemies. Revelation has a lot of symbolic language. It has a lot of things in it that we need to get. But sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. This is another passage in which God is glorifying his son Jesus as he saves his people and as he destroys his enemy. And I'll go ahead and give you the application of the sermon right from the get-go so that you can be thinking about it throughout the sermon. You should be one of God's people and not one of his enemies. Because he's going to be glorified through you one way or the other. It's not as if in this life we have a choice of whether or not we're going to bring glory to God. The question is always, how are you going to bring glory to God? Are you going to bring glory to God by singing songs of his mercy? Or are you going to bring glory to God by showing his holiness and his righteous vengeance? We said this last week. I've been in Maine all week, so it feels like three weeks since I've been here. But last week we said life is uh, an all-in venture. It's an all-in fatal game. And we spend so much of our life trying to distract ourselves away from that truth. We, we want to calm the, the voice of our conscience. We want to move through the issues quickly. We want to pretend like everything's okay and in reality, what we're seeking to do is to somehow believe that life is not a fatal, all-in kind of game. But it is. And so the key to joy in this life is realizing the seriousness of it and then getting on the right side so that you can live it with joy instead of living it any other way. Because the whole point of this world is that God is going to receive glory through you either in hearing your songs about his mercy or in bringing judgment upon your head. And so in this passage, we see these two things together. The first vision goes um, from verses 1 all the way down to verse 13. And then the second vision is verses 14 through the end of the chapter. And I've got to say, I'm impressed that Neil read it so well given that he had no idea 10 minutes ago he was going to be reading it at all. 
So let's look at this first vision. If you want to know a way to encapsulate this first vision, here's what it is. It's the lamb with his army. The lamb with his army. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the land. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. What do we see, first of all, about this lamb and about his army? Well, the first thing we see is we see them on the mountain. And again, because we're not accustomed to reading the Bible thoroughly and well, we can really miss the punch of what's going on here. Because throughout the Old Testament, there was a hope, and the hope was that God's people would be again with him on his holy mountain. We don't know where the Garden of Eden is. Some Bible scholars work out things and they've taken, you know, um, they've taken satellite imagery that see old riverbeds and they can make guesses and these sorts of things. Uh, and it matters where it is. But what matters more for our reading is what the idea of Eden sort of became in the minds of the people of God in the Old Testament. And by the time you get to Ezekiel, wherever Eden actually was, when you get to Ezekiel, it's described as being on top of a mountain. Listen to what Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14 says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Now, no doubt there's symbolic language in that, but the point I want you to see is that in Ezekiel and in the rest of the prophets, there was this idea that God's holy place, his Eden, was on top of a mountain. And that one day, this mountain was going to be established and God's people were going to know the joy of being in his place as his people with his presence. In other words, one day it was going to be that God's people would know what they were for and be with him without fault and with great joy. Listen to what Isaiah 2.2 says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. Daniel sees something about this in one of his visions. He sees this uh, listing of these great empires, and then all of a sudden there's this stone, this little rock that comes and hits them, and this little rock grows up into what? A mountain. 
This is one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. You saw, O king, Daniel says, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Just so you know, that's Rome. Okay? As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now you're like, Drew, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, the people of Israel and their prophets used prophetic symbolism to draw out the hopes of the people of God in the same way that movies draw out our hopes. So a, a few of us in here the other night went to see Avengers Endgame, right? And I won't give any spoilers in case you haven't seen it, because you already know the story of the movie. What's the story of the movie? That everything is bad, it looks really hopeless, and we're really helpless, and then someone better than us comes along and defeats the big enemy and makes it all better. And the reason that those movies sell by the hundreds of millions is not simply because we're bored and we have nothing better to do. It's because those movies draw out our deepest hopes. And our deepest hopes are that somebody, and we'll make up an idea, right? And we'll give that person extra special powers. And then we invest all of our hope in them to come and make it better. Well, that myth that floats throughout our hearts and our society found its truth in Jesus. And that's exactly what symbolically is going on here in the prophets and in Revelation. There's this hope that one day somebody's going to come and make everything right. He's going to vindicate the people who are attached to him. And he's going to bring them back into Eden so that everything is the way it should be. And the scripture says here, hints at that hope and tells us to point that hope, not at Iron Man, right? Or the Hulk or Captain America or Thor, but to aim that hope squarely at who? <clears throat> and so as opposed to these other creatures that kind of come out of the sea and rise up the beast and the false prophet, and the dragon, Jesus doesn't rise up out of anything. Jesus is there on Mount Zion standing with his people. And so the point that John is making here is that all of your hope of getting this world right need to center around Jesus. And any part you play, you need to see as being one who follows Jesus. And that all of our hopes need to be woven into that story. He's there, but he's not alone. He's there with his people. We see that, and with him 144,000. Now, we said when we looked at this back in chapter 7 that the 144,000 stand for the church. And the reason there's 144, well, there's lots of reasons why the number 144,000 is there, but the reason that there's a number at all is this, is a way to signify to us that not a single stinking one of them are missing. Now, of course, the 144,000 has to do with the 12 uh, patriarchs 
times the 12 apostles times the fullness, which is a thousand. But the fact that there's a number has to do with Jesus has every single one of them there. They're all counted. Not a single one of them is missing. Now, we know from Revelation 5 that this is an untold multitude, but the point of the number is that they're all there. And they belong to God. It says that they have a mark, the name of the Father, written on their foreheads, and the name of the Son written on them as well. They belong to God. The second thing we see about this people is that they're pure. They're pure. Look at verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, again, we're dealing with symbolic language here. So is this teaching that if you're married, you're jacked? No, thank you, Jen. That's not what it's teaching. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people were pictured as his what? As his bride, as his pure bride. As a matter of fact, uh, no matter how often I fail it, my, my, the verse that guides my ministry is found in 2 Corinthians 11. It's verse 2. Listen to what Paul says. For I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul, in, in leading these people to Jesus, was causing them to be betrothed to their husband. We're sort of still waiting on the marriage ceremony, but in the meantime, Paul's job was to keep them as a pure virgin. And that's the idea here, that Jesus' people belong to him. They're pure, and they're singing. Look at verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Let's review this if we can, because this is not unimportant. What is the most often repeated command in Scripture? To sing. To sing. To shout joyfully to the Lord to sing I know that my ministry verse is that we all be presented as pure virgins to Jesus but what is my measure of our maturity well there's a few of them but the one that I connect with most which is why I play drums and inevitably end up here in the band not only because I need to but because I want to is because one of the measures of maturity is when we're singing loudly to the Lord in response to his mercy and his person, concerned that he hear our praises and seeking to encourage one another in song. I can promise you the most uh, edifying point of my week is not when I stand up here and preach. It's when I sit back there and sing. I'll be happy when people think Emmanuel sings too loud. I'll be happy when you no longer worry about what the person beside you is thinking, but you're worried that they're hearing what you're singing right. You want them to hear you sing. 
Because what we want to do is we want to show them that the response of the message of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, which is what every song we sing is about, it's either about something about the Lord or something about his redemption. You, we don't sing any other kind of songs. We sing songs about who God is and what he's done in Jesus. And when you are hearing those things and responding from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, singing so loud because you can't help it, then I'll think we're on to something. And I'm not just saying sing loud to make Drew happy. What I'm saying is you are able to sing a song that nobody else can sing. And so you should sing it. Nobody else can sing with any hope that God hears them. You can. Nobody else can sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was once blind, but now I see, but you can sing that. Not everybody can sing, Jesus died for me, but you can sing that. You can sing it. And listen to me, you should sing it. You should sing. This is, it's so loud that it sounds like stuff that they just have to kind of describe it with all kinds of harps and voices and it sounds like the ocean roaring. Because they knew what it was like to not have a song to sing except for a dirge or a death song and they had seen God work and throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, whenever God did something amazing, how did people respond? They sang. And, and you think, but Drew, man, if we, if we like really worship in here, and, and I'm not saying go crazy. If you run up and down the aisles, one of the elders is going to say, jog in place. <laughs> right? Um. But you're like, if we sing really, really loud, like people might be uncomfortable. R read 1 Corinthians 14. That's the point. They're to walk in and to see us worshiping the Lord and be overwhelmed with the fact that I ain't got what they got. Now, I've, I've preached this a hundred times and I'll preach it a thousand more times. You really, really need to sing louder than you sing. And with a full heart. Because not everybody can sing what you sing. So these people belong to God. They've got his marks. They're pure. That is, they've not given themselves over to receiving the mark of the beast. They're not listening to the voice of the false prophet Babylon, the whore. They're singing about God's salvation and judgment. And then it says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I'm reading through the gospel of Mark in my quiet time right now. And it's just amazing when Jesus calls somebody to, to be his disciple, what does he say to them? Follow me. And it's one of those things in the Bible that is simple but hard, isn't it? We like to make following Jesus complicated because then it helps us to generate an excuse as to why we're not doing it. Or we like to conceive of the Christian life in another kind of way. 
But if you want to conceive of the Christian life in the way that Jesus conceived of it, it's basically this. Where I go, you go. What I do, you do. And it's so deceptively simple. It's just really difficult because there's a bunch of other voices and there's a bunch of other calls and there's a lot of other people who in subtle and overt ways are constantly calling for us to follow them. But we follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we become what we are. I don't know about you, when I read this, I was immediately convicted that these people have not defiled themselves with women. It says that no lie was found on their mouth, for they are blameless. Like, who here by themselves qualifies for that? Now, who here in Jesus qualifies for that? And who here by Jesus is being made qualified for that? The call of the, the, the New Testament is to become by the Spirit what you have been made by Jesus. And so there's a sense in which we are virgins, we are without blame we're blameless we have no lie in our mouth because Jesus has made us that way but then what we are becomes our deepest desire and so by following him we walk a path where we're made into what we are and so Jesus is standing on the mountain the hope of making everything right is centered on him and his people which is an untold number, but is given a number here to show that not a single one of them is missing, that Jesus has got his people and they're with him and they're praying and they're praising and they're singing. And this is so important because for the last few weeks, we've been looking at all these bad guys who want to derail us from making it to that point. And the point of this passage is, despite all of their efforts, Jesus will be on God's mountain with his people. And so we move into the messages of these three angels. I'm not going to make it all the way through this passage today, so we'll be back at this next week. There's the message of these three angels. After this vision of Jesus and his people comes, we see these proclaiming messengers. So he's standing on a mountain with his people, with proclaiming messengers. That's what an angel is. It's a messenger. And so what these angels are doing is they're going about proclaiming God's glory and God's gospel and God's victory. They're proclaiming the good news that God has saved his people and will destroy his enemies. And so the first angel goes out and he preaches the gospel. Look at verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the gospel, that God is our creator, that we are to give him glory and fear him, and the hour of his judgment will come. Our gospel presentations are usually different than the ones that they do in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when the apostles are talking to pagans, they begin with the fact that God is creator and they end with the fact that Jesus is judge. And yes, right in the middle is the cross and the offer of the forgiveness of sins. 
but we jump over the first and skip the last and to our shame focus only on the middle. Jesus died for you to make you free. Free from what? Well, God is the creator and you've not worshipped him as you should worship your creator. He's made you an amazing thing to do amazing things and you've laid aside your calling and you've trashed yourself. You didn't worship him. You didn't fear him. What else has he freed us from? Not only from what we've done to ourselves, but Jesus has died to free us from what he's going to do to us if we do not repent and turn. Paul, look at Acts 17. He starts with the fact that God created and he ends with the fact that Jesus is coming back as judge. The gospel has that in it. And so this is the gospel that's being proclaimed here. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. <clears throat> she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now since we're going to focus on this and who Babylon is when we get to chapter 17, I won't preach here. We'll preach about Babylon there except to say this. The two great ways that the devil seeks to derail us is through persecuting us and through tempting us. And which is it that we face more? Temptation. <clears throat> he says, I'll kill you if you don't obey. Or he says, you'd be happier if you obeyed. You'd have this. This is what life is like on this side. And he tempts us in a thousand different ways all the time. Doesn't he? We don't have to worry about persecution. I'm tired of the way that Christians in America uh, make themselves the subject of persecution. That's our only rallying cry. Our problem is not that we're persecuted. Our problem is that we're succumbing to temptation. That we're not keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord and on his work. And of course he's given us lots of things to enjoy, but he's given us those things to enjoy for his sake. We need to watch out that we don't drink the wine of Babylon who tries to heat us up with her sexual immorality. And it's everywhere. Then a third angel comes along and preaches the gospel in another way. Verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name You're like drew that's not gospel gospel is good news how is that good news For those of us, may I be among their number, who are really seeking to follow Jesus and are really seeking to drown out the voice of the world and who are exhausted from the effort of trying to remain faithful to the Lord, it is good news that one day all that stuff's going to be wiped out. And it is good news that one day, whereas now we're the ones who can't seem to find rest while all the world is fat, on pleasure that one day we'll finally be able to rest 
that one day we won't have to struggle against our flesh and against the world. We, we will be able just to live in an everlasting yes instead of a million frequent no's. And that we'll live the way that we should. That's good news to us. The judgment of God is part of the good news of the way that God is glorified. Did you know that God receives glory from hell? And that as Christians, we need to guard ourselves against backing away from that doctrine. How does hell glorify God? Hell glorifies God in this way. It says, man, what must God be like if spurning him deserves this? The reason that hell is so bad is because God is so glorious. And to turn away from one such as this deserves punishment such as this. We recognize this in our own judicial system, don't we? I'll give you a, a thing. I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do all the time. If you steal food from a dog, what's the worst that can happen to you? Well, you get bit, maybe the owner will shoot you, but most likely that's not going to happen, all right? Heck, if I try and steal a, used to steal a toy from my old dog who passed away a couple years ago, Stanley, he would, like, growl at me and nip at me. You steal from a person, you commit strong-arm robbery, is the worst that can happen to you is you get bit. No, you can go to jail for a couple of years, can't you? When you steal from a bank, what do you get for stealing from a bank? 20 years? You steal secrets from the United States and you give them to Russia or the Chinese, what do you get for treason? You get death, all right? And so what you notice is that in a just system, as the worth of the victim grows, even though the crime is the same, as the worth of the victim grows, so does the punishment. And so the question then is this, why is there a hell? Well, because it's just... Because what we've done is steal glory from the almighty, infinite, omnipotent, all-glorious God. And therefore, what judgment is deserved by our own judicial system on that basis? It's eternal death. It's suffering. Because God is that good. And so the point when you hear the doctrine of hell is not to go, that's disgusting. It is to go, God must really be glorious. I need to worship him. Hell is an echo of the goodness and beauty of God. And because it stands out there as a threat for all who would spurn God, verse 12 comes next. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John is saying, here's the good news. Jesus is going to make everything right. He's going to make everything right by saving the faithful. And he's going to make everything right by destroying the wicked. Therefore, listen, church, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He breaks that fourth wall. He's describing all these things. And then finally, he looks at these suffering churches and he goes, So since this is all true, you really, really need to endure. And you need to keep God's commandments. And you need to keep your faith in Christ. Since this is true, you need to be stoking that stuff. Because there's a harlot who's seeking to make you drunk with temptation. There's a devil that's seeking to devour you with persecution. And so what we need to do is constantly be stoking our faith with one another and towards one another. 
This is why fights in church are so bad. Because we actually do have real enemies and they're not in the other pew, they're out there. But because we don't think too much about what's out there, we make an enemy of what's in here. And we need to be being encouraged by one another because if we fall off the path everlastingly, we see what happens. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. And then he hears a voice, and we'll close with this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. John says, there's this temptation, there's this persecutor, you need to endure in spite of them. By holding your faith in Jesus, you're going to run headlong into them and their wrath, and they may even kill you. So let me encourage you with this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then that's so important that the Spirit echoes, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So you've got John saying, you need to endure. Then you have a voice from heaven saying, and endure all the way to death because you'll be blessed. And then the Spirit says, please do that, blessed indeed, for then you'll rest from your labors. So we bring ourselves to St. Athanasius. He wrote a book called On the Incarnation. St. Athanasius is the saint that nobody really knows, even though he's one of the five like, most intelligent and influential people in the history of the Christian church. Here's what he says about the saints and the disciples of Christ. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as something dead. Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, that is, before Jesus came, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has risen, uh, death is no longer terrible, but all who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. But that the devil who of old wickedly exulted in death, now that the pains of death are loosed, he alone it is who remains truly dead. There is proof of this too for men who before they believe in Christ think death horrible and are afraid of it, once they are converted, despise it so completely that they go eagerly to meet it and themselves become witnesses of the Savior's resurrection from it. Even children hasten thus to die, and not men only, but women train themselves by bodily, bodily discipline to meet it. So weak has death become that even women who used to be taken in by it mock it now as a dead thing robbed of all of its strength. Death has become like a tyrant who's been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot as he now is, the passers-by jeer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So death has been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample at it as they pass by and witness to him, deride it, scoffing and saying, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting?
But even as we sing that song and sing we must, we have to realize that persecution has a voice and temptation has a voice. And we need to be doing whatever we can to fan into flame our faith and to endure in spite of persecution and in spite of temptation so that we can proclaim the gospel of Christ and do it with effectiveness uh, and without hypocrisy. And the reason that we can do this is because there's one other place where God judged someone as wicked so that his people could be saved. You see, the Bible is not just a long story of God destroying the wicked so that he can save the righteous. The center point of the story is God in Jesus being condemned as wicked so that we might be saved through his judgment. And in doing that, God not only set us free from the power of our sin, and not only by that is he setting us free from the power of temptation, but by that he has dealt with our sins once for all so that death has no sting. So this morning, will you follow Christ? Will you take the things seriously that the Bible takes seriously, that there is temptation out there trying to get you drunk and that there is persecution out there trying to make you a coward? And will you hold on to Christ and continue to speak the gospel and put away temptation to just follow Jesus wherever he goes? What does that look like? It looks like sharing the gospel with yourself. It looks like sharing the gospel with your family. It looks like sharing the gospel with your day in and day out friends and people that you run in with. It's sharing the gospel with other people in this church. And it's sharing the gospel with the world. Some people come to church looking for a job to do. I have a job for every single one of you. It's not to fill some spot. It's to share the gospel with yourself, your family, the people that you know, others in this church, and the field. You, you, let's all work on that together, and then we'll worry about spots that we need to fill another day. And not only seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, but also seeking to turn away from those things that tempt us so that we do not give into Babylon and we do not give into the fear of death. We can do this because we have confidence that Jesus, who has taken our sin, is standing on Mount Zion and he will bring us safely home. Let's go to him in prayer.